0: Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind.
1: And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. My co-host Ethan Elkind is off for the night, but he'll be back next week. Tonight, we'll be looking at the continued rise in traffic deaths in San Francisco and what the city might do to make our streets safer. We'll also hear about the local efforts to save Northern Californians' newts. You will want to stay tuned because it's one of those awesome nature stories that makes you glad to be alive. Um, but first, after years of drought, the idea of a rain garden sounded a bit fanciful. Why would we need one? But then came January. So much rain, it felt like we would not only need a rain garden, but also an ark. Rain gardens and bios, rain gardens and bioswales are elements of what's known as green infrastructure, and it's all part of the Bay Area's arsenal for dealing with extreme weather. To talk about these innovative ideas that will help our region deal with the rain Rain, like that we will, the rain that we had recently and are likely to see again in the future. I'm pleased to be joined by Jennifer Cooper. She's a Landscape Architecture Bureau Manager for the San Francisco Department of Public Works. Thanks for joining us, Jennifer.
2: Thanks for having
1: me. We're also joined by John King. He's the urban design critic for the San Francisco Chronicle and author of a recent article on green infrastructure in the Bay Area. Welcome back to the show, John. Thank you. We're so happy to have you, John King. Um, John, I want to start with you. Tell us a little bit about green infrastructure.
3: It's something that sounds pretty technical and wonky, but we all experience it in the Bay Area. If you walk down a sidewalk and instead of conventional landscaping, see kind of reeds and grasses and rocks and things, those are rain gardens or bioswales to let water run off and basically slow down going into storm pipes. And at the same time, if you were to go to some big, cool, new open space, like the public space and park around the Southeast Community Center that Jennifer will be talking about, you'll see these very kind of naturalistic landscapes that are designed to filter out contaminants and recharge groundwater and to have water during big storms like what we experienced, go into the ground more slowly than they would otherwise to keep big drains from being overwhelmed.
1: Yeah, and I think that's a, a big issue that came up for a lot of people watching the rain just go down the storm drains and feeling like, we need this water, so why is it going down the drain, literally? Jennifer, um, so John explained what a bioswale in a rain garden is. Where can we find examples of those in the city?
2: Well, there's a lot of places you can look. I think for a typical bioswale, you could be driving down Cesar Chavez Mm -hmm. and look at kind of any corner right in front of City Hall near McAllister. Oh. You can see some there. We're just about to complete some this spring on Page Street uh, at Buchanan and at Laguna. So there's, uh, oh, and all up and down Sunset Boulevard. So there's a lot of different places in the city that you can see these.
1: So a bioswale isn't necessarily a – I mean I think of it as something hilly, but it's actually kind of – is it divoted? Is it sort of dep- uh, like a depression in the, the ground?
2: Yeah, it's a depression. And if you're trying to tell the difference between a bioswale and a rain garden, I think they're used interchangeably a lot. But bioswales are more typically what you find right along the curb. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's really literally a swale, a vegetated swale, a depression. Um, But a rain garden, usually that's when you have a little bit more space, like at the Southeast Community Center, and you could really do something a little more decorative, you know, more of an adventurous type of a landscape.
1: And where's the water going again?
2: Well, it depends on where you are. If Mm -hmm. you're on the west side of the city and you've got sandy soil where we used to have sand dunes historically. You know, it might sink right into the aquifer. Oh. Right. So, you know, you can try to soak it up or we're just detaining it. Mm -hmm. So in some parts of the city, you just want to slow it down from getting into the combined sewer system. Mm -hmm. So you just hold it. It's like your bathtub. You know, So it'll fill up with water. There's an overflow drain. Mm -hmm. And so you're just detaining a certain percentage of the water.
1: Yeah. And so and there's uh, they're not that big. There's smaller projects all dotted through the city. And Mm -hmm. how long have we had them?
2: Uh, over the past 10 years, they've been being built in San Francisco. So the SFPUC came out with the Stormwater Management Ordinance Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2010. Yeah. And then they were building eight um, implement early implementation projects throughout the city. Mm-hmm. And so we're just going to be wrapping some of those up in the coming years. Mm-hmm. But it's taken a while to get these in the ground so they can test them, see how they're working, you know, really refine their best management practices.
1: I think I've seen a rain garden. Um, maybe it was Divisadero around Fulton, not too far from the um, by right there. And when I looked at it, it was just Filled kind of with trash. I mean, how do you keep them clean so that they're not clogged up for rainstorms like the one we just had?
2: Yeah, and that can happen, especially the bioswales that are along the streets, mm-hmm. because that's where the water's gonna go first, yeah. right? So you're just gonna end up filtering out some of the trash in the bioswale, which mm-hmm. is just kind of an unfortunate fact of how the water moves and what's in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why PUC has their rain guardians program, where you can adopt a rain garden and then kind of help keep those clean. I mean, of course, the city's maintaining them as well, mm-hmm. um, but kind of like the drain adoption program. Just yeah. kind of, you know, if you happen to see it in your neighborhood, you wanna help keep it up. Uh, Yeah, but it is a Can you
1: name the rain garden like you can name your storm drain? (laughs) I've seen some really funny storm drain names.
2: I don't know. Yeah. That would
1: be great. (laughs) I think I saw like Stormy Stormy McDrainy or something. It would crack me up. John, you're the architecture critic for the the Chronicle. What do you think about these rain gardens and bioswales just from an architectural point of view? Are they beautifying the city?
3: I think they look great, and I think they do beautify the city. What you tend to have... It just gives to me a little bit of a visual reminder of what the earth was before, not that these are specific things that existed there. But the naturalistic feel is one I like. You can really see this on Mission Creek if you're in the city. There are two long blocks of a park along the south side of Mission Creek that are about 20 years now old now, and they're kind of your classic neighborhood greens kind of thing, and they're nice. But then the third block has three very large rain collectors that are bioswales and capturing street runoff on streets you don't even see there. And to me, it's just kind of neat because suddenly you're stepping into a hint of maybe what the area used to be, even if it's all stylized.
1: I mean, I think it's nice when it sort of fits into the environment that you can even barely see them. Um, well, the, these ideas of bioswales and rain gardens, they look different depending on where you're, you're located. And I know, John, you described in your article what you learned about the Napa River Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yes, absolutely. And that's not a bioswale in a traditional sense. That is a flood control, which is how can mm. you use green infrastructure to protect the landscape? And Napa going back into the late 1990s, and I'll leave out all the political backstory, but essentially (laughs) it opened up, it's a long one, it opened up the mouth of the Napa River, restored lots of wetlands at the south end, just to give it a more natural ability to flow and move water. But then within downtown Napa, you did have the need to increase the way the water flowed through so they did put an underground culvert in but then also terraced creek sides and things to allow more capacity a few homes were purchased and then taken down new parks were created along the river things like that and so you have in Napa you have a system that Napa used to flood every few years it Mm -hmm. has not flooded since this got mostly done And it's also – there's more public space. There's more of a feel that you're kind of part of the North Bay rather than in a big city that's got a big culvert running. Mm -hmm. They they did a great job.
1: I agree with you because I was just up there not too long ago. And there are just parks along the river that I don't even remember being there. Um, They weren't. (laughs) They weren't. And it's a way for the public to really – be connected to the water versus you know the famous Los Angeles River that's you know, concreted up and it just you know people don't go down there except I think to shoot music videos. Um, I thought they did a great job.
3: Well, you... another another yeah. thing, super quick on Napa is if you go down, you'll see a big plaza along the river mm. downtown. That's actually a flood wall that's oh. protecting that bank. And so there's a big public hard plaza on top of it, and then new buildings were built behind it. You know, mm-hmm. it it changes the landscape in very positive ways.
1: Well, there are two other examples that you talk about. One was the Pleasant Hill Library, and the other is the Atherton Civic Center. Can you tell us about
3: those? Absolutely. I have not seen the Atherton Civic Center, but that is a large, you know, here's Atherton, the in the lap of plenty. <laughs> and the idea is, well, let's, let's make our civic center, the landscape, very much a sustainable model. So it's as much a teaching tool as anything, but lots of bioswales, lots of areas where, as Jennifer was saying, it does go into the aquifer. The Pleasant Hill Library, you've got two huge... Basically, the new site for the Pleasant Hill Library is in a floodplain, because there's a creek that runs right by it, and then a big road where water just kind of runs down from the Brionas area, so it's a, two huge bioswales, but they're lavishly planted in reed grass and things that'll fill in and everything. And it fully got put to the test, you know, New Year's Eve and things, and filled up and then percolated down in the course of the next day or so. Mm-hmm. So you're you're basically in this very adventurous landscape around a civic building mm-hmm. in both cases, and that's great.
1: Well, I know that the city itself, Jennifer, doesn't deal with wildfires, but I would imagine having rain gardens and bioswales are good buffers for both when it's really raining and when it's not. Is that the case?
2: Well, I think in a Mediterranean climate, we get both extremes not at the same time in a way that would help, right? So you're not going to have a, a wet bioswale probably around the time that you would have a fire, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, if that did happen to occur, it would be a good buffer. Yes. But I think. Our green infrastructure really acts different differently than other areas of the country mm-hmm. that get water on a more regular basis. I mean, mm-hmm. green infrastructure really got popular in the Pacific Northwest first because they mm-hmm. have so much rain to manage, mm-hmm. right? Whereas we're just getting into it, you know, in the past maybe 10 years mm-hmm. because we can have extreme droughts, we could have extreme rain, you know. So our landscapes really have to be able to now handle either, either or, mm-hmm. you know, and also look beautiful while they're doing it. So I think, I mean, what John's getting at is these are landscapes that people can actually enjoy, right? So they're performing a service; mm-hmm. they are part of our infrastructure, yeah. But they need to be beautiful, right? right. They need to be something people actually want, um, not something that they just need, yeah. Right? Like these parks along the river, they're like amazing places for people. Mm-hmm. So I think the multi-benefits is where things are going. Mm-hmm. Like it's habitat, it's places for people, it's it's all of those things in addition to stormwater infrastructure
4: Mm -hmm.
2: well in a city that's
1: seven by seven miles Mm -hmm. and where every parking spot every plot that could be housing is really hard fought for Mm -hmm. i mean do you ever encounter difficulties in trying to install a bioswale or a rain garden i mean are there any times where the neighbors are like no we don't want that here
2: I mean, we're, you know, the public right of way has a lot of things that it's trying to do at the same time. So in the public right of way, you are kind of squeezing, you know, every you know square foot out of it that you can. But we're also including green infrastructure in ways that aren't technically green. Mm -hmm. Um, Color-wise, you know, we can use permeable paving. Mm. We could use gravel pits under a plaza like a sump that Mm -hmm. you wouldn't even see. You Honestly, you wouldn't even know it was there, but it's still performing the function. Mm -hmm. So I think we're pretty much going to need every tool in our toolbox to be able to squeeze in what we need to. But I think we're going to have to start thinking on a much larger scale. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all important and create a mosaic throughout the city of uh, small interventions, but we're really going to have to start looking at you know larger scale projects mm-hmm. uh, to deal with what's coming up in the future
1: are you are is the city thinking about changing the building code for example or how you're allowed to pave the sidewalk near your house i mean is is that the sort of stuff that you're thinking about
2: i don't know if there's any legislation related to that coming up but we're definitely studying it within our own studio mm-hmm. uh, we have the soil maps from the puc and so every new project we're looking to see if there's opportunities trying to be proactive mm-hmm. so we're working on Buchanan mall right mm-hmm. now uh, oh, that. New park in the Western Edition. Okay. And so what's fascinating about that is it's, you know, meant to be a park. It's not meant to deal with stormwater in any way. But there mm-hmm. was the project manager saw there was an opportunity uh, to look at a grant Ah. potentially. So they reached out to the PUC mm-hmm. to see if their project might be a good candidate. Mm-hmm. And they thought that it was, you know, uh-huh. it had good soil. Yeah. And so now actually it's going to be one of the first parks in San Francisco to receive stormwater from the street. And actually be treated in a bioswale in the park. Wow. And so there'll be permeable paving. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at not just projects that are specifically for green infrastructure, but Mm -hmm. any other type of project where you could add it.
1: Yeah. These are the moments when you feel like, I'm grateful to live in the Bay Area. Smart people like you are wisely using our funds to make it <laughs> so that we kind of preserve water where we can and manage water where we need to. Um, but speaking of the costs of these things, you know, they're not inexpensive. And, John, you know, the N- Napa River Project cost roughly $350 million. And, you know, national Republicans called it a blue state boondoggle. Um, but, you know, was that fair?
3: Honestly, I don't think that was fair at all, because first of all, any drought control project is going to cost a lot of money. There was a real savagery to it, which is this is in the middle of Nancy Pelosi's turf. I mean, I it, I first heard about this thing because it was Nancy Pelosi was taking all this federal money to protect a frog or something like that. I mean, yeah, of course. It, but the flip side, which the engineer talked to me about, the Napa engineer, Is if you have downtown Napa routinely flooded, that causes lots of costly damages each time it usually gets paid for by the state and the city or the state and the feds. So if you do that kind of investment beyond all the benefits that some design guy like me or like Jennifer enjoys, you know, you're also saving money long term. Otherwise, it's the kind of thing where we can save $100 million, but then every five years you're paying out $100 million in flood damages. Mm-hmm. You, you just lost money.
1: Yeah, and I think it's great to – I mean the Bay Area is known to percolate new ideas and to kind of try things out. So we're all going to need to pull together to figure out how to deal with these extremes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, might as well try here where we have smart people like Jennifer to figure (laughs) it out. Um, You know, Jennifer, I wanted to ask um, as we end this segment, can residents petition for green infrastructure projects in their neighborhood? You mentioned the Buchanan Mall. I mean, Mm -hmm. are, are there ways for citizens to reach out and say, I don't know if my soil is permeable, but maybe there's a rain garden possibility here near my house?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, They could reach out to the PUC or their local supervisor. You know, they can get that request to us. And, yeah, it would be great. I mean, every little bit helps. And we can also provide a link to the soil data online. like mm-hmm. That's available to everybody. So yeah. if people wanted to know if their yard or you know was within one of those zones, they yeah. could do a little bit in their own yard as well.
1: I my, my lawn in the back is tiny. It's like a postage stamp, but it gets a bit <laughs> boggy. So now I'm thinking, perhaps I am in one. Perhaps I'm making my own rain garden <laughs> where the raccoons are doing it for me. I think that's what's happening. <laughs> well, we'll have to leave it there. We've been talking to Jennifer Cooper. She's the landscape architecture bureau manager for the San Francisco Department of Public Works. Jennifer, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks so
3: much for having me.
1: And we were talking to John King. He's the urban design critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. John, it's always nice to have you on State of the Bay.
3: Thanks for letting me take part.
1: Oh, yeah. Come back soon. Um, coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll look at the continued rise in traffic deaths in San Francisco and what the city might de- be able to do to make our streets safer. That's right after the break. Welcome back to State at the Bay, I'm Grace Wan. In 2014, San Francisco adopted Vision Zero, a strategy to respond to the alarming number of traffic accidents on our city streets that result in injury or death. Vision Zero's ambitious goal was to reduce that number to zero by 2024. When the plan was adopted, its advocates were confident that a focused effort could result in safer streets. In the initial years, traffic fatalities did indeed decline. In 2017, the number of traffic deaths fell to 20, lower than it had been in years. But since then, the numbers have almost been mostly on the rise. And last year, the city experienced 37 traffic fatalities. That's the highest number since 2007. So the question is, why has it been so challenging to reduce traffic traffic injuries and deaths, and what are we doing as a city to turn this problem around? Joining me tonight to discuss these issues and more, I'm pleased to be joined by Leah Shama, Sheham. She's the founder and director of the Vision Zero network. It's a collaborative campaign to help communities reach their goals of eliminating all traffic fatalities and severe injuries. Welcome to State of the Bay, Leah. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, we're really pleased that you could join us. We also have Tom McGuire; he's the director of streets with the San Francisco Municipal Transit Agency. Thanks for joining us, Tom.
0: Hey Grace, great to be here. Thank great. you.
1: And uh, you know, this is a this is a topic that I know our listeners are really into, so I wanted to put the number out early. Again, we're talking about trying to reduce traffic fatalities and deaths and injuries here in San Francisco. Do you feel safe navigating the streets? Whether you are a driver, a cyclist, pedestrian, or transit rider, we want to hear from you. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. So Tom, I wanted to start with you. I mentioned in the introduction that the number of traffic fatalities last year was has, was the highest since 2007. Um, and already this year, according to the traffic fatality notification table, there have been three deaths. So that's not good. Why do these numbers continue to rise? And are there any patterns to these traffic fatalities? Yeah, uh, uh,
0: there are some very important patterns, and, and our efforts about, to address Vision Zero in San Francisco are data driven for a reason. It's because we're a very unique city, and the things that happen here are often indicative of, of larger patterns that are taking place statewide and even nationwide. Um, unfortunately, in 2022, as you said, we had 37 people killed on our streets. That's the highest number we've had since we adopted Vision Zero in 2014. Um, a quarter of the more than a quarter of those, 27% of those deaths. Were the result of uh, drivers who were committing hit and run. Uh, by they were they were hit and run by by drivers, mm. um, which is an ex- extraordinarily high number. Uh, typically, there are a few of those in San Francisco every year. Um, so, ten of the thirty-seven were drivers who, who hit and run, um, and and even more shockingly, twenty of the thirty-seven. So, more than half the people who died in traffic were pedestrians, uh, the people who are most vulnerable on our streets. So, mm. I, I think Grace, those are probably the two most important. Data points and trends. Um, the, the other, uh, I think, some of the other factors that we saw more in 2022 than we did in previous years. Um, if, as best we could tell, uh, eight of the 37 people who died in traffic were people who were experiencing homelessness, and again, people who are extremely vulnerable on our streets. Um, and ten of the 37 were riding on motorcycles or mopeds. Oh God! Um, so those those are some of the things that were. Um, extraordinary about twenty twenty two, but unfortunately the the upward trend is 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 not out of the ordinary. It's something that has caused us to redouble our efforts.
1: Well thank you for helping us break that down and understand them. And Leah, I wanted to go with to, to go to you. You work with cities across the country. Can you put these numbers in context? I mean is San Francisco an outlier in seeing its traffic deaths rise or is this a national trend?
5: Unfortunately, San Francisco is really trending the way the nation is. I'm I'm really sad to report that our traffic deaths have been increasing nationally. The last year on record for the whole nation or or at least officially uh, is 2021 in which there were 43,000 traffic deaths in the country. That was a 10 and a half percent increase over the prior year. And that terrible number from 2021 represents a 16 year high. So we had not seen nationally that high of traffic numbers since way back in 2005, and I want to emphasize, as Tom referenced too, um, not all folks injured and killed. Uh, it's not equitably, you know, displayed across across the country. As in San Francisco, what we see is disproportionately people walking and people biking. We see disproportionately uh, people in low-income communities and communities of color, where the street designs, frankly, have not um, prioritized safety mm. in, in the last, you know, couple decades or, or century. So we really see this nationwide problem, but it's even worse amongst um, certain communities, which really, you know, becomes absolutely. Uh, an equity issue as well as a safety issue.
1: Absolutely. And Tom, you know, we were talking about Vision Zero, this very ambitious plan that San Francisco has to have no traffic fatalities, you know, 2024, which is next year. So since the that policy was implemented, what has San Francisco done to help with this problem?
0: Well, l- let me start with some of the things that I think we're getting right in San Francisco.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and those largely have to do with the pace at which we're trying to redesign the streets and change the way um, the streets that we drive on, the, the sidewalks we walk on, uh, are, are laid out here in San Francisco. I think any of your listeners who have tra- walked or driven anywhere in San Francisco in the last few years know uh, we've built uh, nearly 100 miles of bike lanes, we've widened sidewalks, we've lowered speed limits on hundreds of miles of streets. Um, and, and in places where we've made those investments, we have seen uh, reductions in collisions 20 30 40 percent reductions in collisions um, and, th- and so that 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 that's a that's that's a positive to focus on the question is how can we scale that uh, scale those efforts citywide we have about twelve percent of the streets in San Francisco is where more than three-quarters of the fatalities and serious injuries take place hmm. uh, our goal is by 2024 to have made made some level of improvement to all of those streets mm-hmm. um, but we've had to Switch from, uh, switch from a, uh, uh, a, a very deliberative and a very poor concrete approach to, to changing streets to what we call a quick build approach, which is um, get the best tool, understand the best tools, collect some data, figure out what works and try to scale it across the city, which is why you see 20 miles an hour signs going out all over town, that, that mm-hmm. lowering speed limits is a proven way to address speed.
1: So um, did I understand you correctly that 12% of the streets are where the majority of these accidents are happening?
0: Uh, that's right. Seventy-five percent of the fatal crashes and, and serious injuries as well take place on just 12 percent of our streets. What,
1: what? Give me an example. What are those streets?
0: You know, the, 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 the big wide streets, that carry a lot of traffic like uh, Geary Boulevard, like Bayshore Boulevard. But they're also uh, as, uh, some of the streets in the communities Leah was talking about. Um, almost all of the tender, actually every single block of the tender line is within that 12 percent, that high injury network. Hmm. Most of the blocks south of market were at the beginning of our Vision Zero journey uh, on that network as well. Mm-hmm. So places where traffic moves too fast, and yep. places where there are lots of vulnerable people.
6: Well,
1: we our calls started lighting up the minute we introduced the programs. And I wanted to go straight to, to some of the calls. Um, Janie in San Francisco on Line 2, um, welcome to State of the Bay.
6: Hi, good evening. Thank you so much. I'm so thankful for this show. I've been trying to contact, I don't even know who, forever. Um, Actually, we live near Geary, and oftentimes I'm out walking with a friend of mine who, um, because of an accident, has a little, she walks fine, but just not super speedy. And it is impossible to make it across Geary Boulevard, and it is terrifying. So a few things, this is pretty wide, but you mentioned Geary. One, why are the stoplights not longer it's insane number two why is there not a stop sign uh forgive me, not a stop sign a um, street light on every single corner and it especially that generally people who walk slower uh maybe because of an accident or whatever are the people who are not driving and it's not easy for them to walk two blocks down to where there's a street light there should be street lights at every corner and they should be longer It should be a city for people who walk. And if the cars have to wait a couple more minutes, it is just horrible, horrible, horrible. It is terrifying.
1: Oh, Janie, thank you so much for that um, observation. I'm going to take that to you, Tom. I mean, Janie lives near Geary Avenue or Geary Boulevard, and she wants to walk across the street, and it's just not enough time. What do you have to say?
0: I I, I think she's making some really good observations about Infrastructure that was built back in the 50s and 60s when we thought the way to build San Francisco was to build it for cars. And we know that doesn't work, doesn't work for safety reasons, doesn't work for equity reasons, doesn't work for climate reasons. Uh, What we're specifically trying to do on streets like Erie uh, is to uh, improve the experience and the safety of pedestrians. We're trying to narrow the crossing distances. So, in many parts of the city, including Erie, you'll see uh, we've we've widened out the, uh, the, the the corners so the crosswalks are shorter. There's less distance to cross. There's less exposure. But, uh, so, maybe perhaps Janie and, and and her um, uh, uh, and her neighbors don't have as long to walk. And then we are also trying to extend those traffic lights so that the walk sign stays on longer. Um, many of our traffic lights are timed for a walking speed that I'm not even sure I could achieve. And I'm a six foot four middle-aged man. Mm. So we've been lowering our, our our, uh, rather extending the green time on our traffic lights all over town. So that somebody who walks at at a much slower than average speed, but totally, uh, uh, totally appropriate speed for, urban area mm-hmm. has a chance to cross and, and, and feels welcome and dignified. In
1: that quote. I have to say, I was in Washington, D.C. recently walking across a major street, and I think it was 91 seconds. was the, 91 was the countdown um, to get across the street, and that's certainly nothing I've experienced here in San Francisco. Um, I want to go to another call. We've got Victoria in San Francisco. Um, Victoria, welcome to State at the Bay.
4: Hello, um, I'm a senior with a mobility disability, and I live at 21st and Cap, in a building that houses over 150 seniors, many of whom are disabled. And as you know, Cap is one block east of Mission, and we can't get across Mission Street. It's a ridiculously short light, and the street is full of potholes. And with my disability, I can't even make it to the middle before. uh, So I have to start walking when the right is red in order to make it across the street. And I can't walk across the street alone. Because of that I have to have somebody scout for me. Mm. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there's over 150 people in the building where I live. I mean, Victoria,
1: can you say again what your cross street was?
4: Um,
1: 21st. 21st. And CAP. Cap. Okay, Tom. And
4: CAP is one block from Mission. And many of us Shop on Mission or go to the doctor or the dentist on Mission. We can't get across the street.
1: What do you say to Victoria about Twenty um, First and Cap, Tom, and going crossing Mission? Tom, are you there? Well, well yeah. Mission
0: <laughs> Mission is another one of those streets that's on the high entry network, um, and I think many of the issues Victoria's talking about are again prevalent in many neighborhoods. Uh, streets like Mission are uh, are essential to support. Uh, people who don't have cars, people who are, uh, who, who are some, uh, our community elders, and folks who need to get around on foot. Uh, what, we can, what we have been doing on Mission Street, again, like Erie Street, we have been trying to retime those traffic lights so that folks can get across a little faster. Um, but we also have been trying to make the experience on Mission Street better for transit riders. And I think it perhaps points out the importance of making sure that people have as many choices as possible to get around San Francisco without having to drive. If there were fewer cars in the city, uh, we'd have less traffic congestion, we'd have less aggressive driving, we'd have fewer of these crashes. Mm -hmm. Um, So our, our efforts on streets like Mission are about both mass transit and pedestrian safety.
1: Well, let me reintroduce the program. This is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW Bay Area. I'm Grace Wan. And we're talking tonight with Leah Sham. She's a Vision Zero network and um, SM- SFMTA's Tom McGuire. And we're talking about how to keep the city streets safer for pedestrians, bicyclists, drivers and such. And we have a question to you listeners. Do you feel safe navigating the streets of San Francisco? And if you've been in a traffic accident or had a close call? we want to hear your story. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. Or email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org or find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Leah, I wanted to ask you, since you work broadly across cities, um, are there other tools that have been particularly effective in other cities that we should think about using in San Francisco?
5: There are. You know, I'll start by saying it's really important to recognize that the U.S., and again, this is San Francisco, California, and the whole U.S., is really in a different place than other many other countries. Um, I'll mention that the World Health Organization did an analysis in 2019, so very recently, and the U.S. ranked 47th worst out of 54 similarly high-income nations. Hmm. So looking at places that back in the 1990s, we were very similarly, um, you know, similar traffic death rates per capita as nations like France and England. Today, people in the U.S. are three times as likely to be killed in a traffic crash as somewhere like France. I say that because, you know, we look and say, okay, look, the fact that Um, we have cell phones that distract us or that, you know, the world is a busy place. We're not unique or that there's, you know, alcohol related crashes. The U.S. is not unique in that. Those are not things that we, you know, hold a, a monopoly on by any means. So I think it's important to look at these national or international examples and say, what are they doing differently? So to your point, you know, really important thing is they've been redesigning their streets for safety first, rather than speed first, hmm. just like Tom mentioned, um, lowering speed limits like they've been doing in the Tenderloin neighborhood, doing quick build redesign projects. And and this might sound like kind of a dirty word to some people, but the goal is to slow people down, mm-hmm. right? We've got to be honest. I think for a long time, I, I even struggled with this, this idea of like, oh, we can have it all. We can have safety and speed and we can get rid of congestion and, you know, unicorns will be flying and rainbows <laughs> will be, you know, everywhere in the sky. Now the reality is there are trade-offs and a trade-off may be that if I'm driving across San Francisco I might need to take two more minutes and honestly it's we're we're talking about minutes or seconds mm-hmm. added to a commute in order to do the things that Tom's talking about which is building out more transit only lanes on a mission street on a geary street widening sidewalks Increasing, just like you said, Grace. Um, the, part of the reason I've noticed this in Washington D.C. also, when I walk there, it is there's so much more time to cross the street. And those are those are policy decisions. Those are really political decisions. That's that's not a technical anomaly. Mm-hmm. So these things that we can do, it is about prioritizing safety, and it's particularly about prioritizing safety of those, frankly, outside of cars better than we've done in the past. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Victoria, who called in, we should be timing lights for folks that that may be slower moving because they have a disability, because they're seniors, because they're pushing a stroller. Again, these are all choices we can make. We're not making them enough in this country or in this state or in this city yet.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we talked a little bit about how we're driving on roads that, that were built a long time ago, and Tom mentioned, you know, with different policies that were behind them. And one thing I think that is... Kind of a feature of a compact city like San Francisco is double parking you know, you're driving down the street, there's a UPS truck, and then there's another truck, and there's another Uber stopped. I mean, there's so much congested traffic on the street. And, um, you know, I'm a parent, I walk around the city, and I'm just terrified of some kid just running, you know, jaywalking across the street. And then you've got the electric scooters and the e-bikes and, you know, now self-driving cars. Um, So, Tom, you know, your job is not easy. And I guess my question is, how is the city responding to this shift in what we're seeing on the roads: scooters, e-bikes, you know, double-parked trucks.
0: Yeah, it, you know, it is an exciting time to be working in the transportation field, but it is also a scary time, and the, and that's because the pace of innovation is often moving faster than we can even change laws and change our parking and traffic laws and our statewide laws to to uh, keep up with that innovation. Double parking is a big issue in San Francisco, uh, perhaps bigger than many other cities, again, because of our, our streets are, are older and in some, some places narrower, uh, and because there's an intense demand for deliveries uh, to, uh, to local businesses, deliveries from local businesses, deliveries to your home. Think about mm-hmm. all the Amazon and other packages we get delivered every day, uh, or the number of times you take Uber or Lyft or use DoorDash. So- uh, there is a, I believe, a very high level of parking enforcement in San Francisco. I I, I, Grace, I do receive more complaints about <laughs> the number of tickets we give than the number of tickets we don't give. But uh, even in a city that gives over a million parking tickets a year, the, 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 the amount of double parking has, has gone up uh, very, very fast. And it, it contributes to aggressive driving. It contributes to uh, pedestrians not being able to be seen the way mm-hmm. they should when they're in crosswalks. Um, and it just contributes to a general sense of, uh, of I guess lawlessness or disorder among drivers on the road, and that, that is a problem. And I mean, to...
1: yeah, I have just have a basic question. I mean, should and should an Uber driver be pulling into a driveway to drop a person off, or is it okay for the or the Lyft driver or whatever the the DoorDash driver to be double parked in a lane?
0: Well, we hope that everyone. Uh, chooses to obey uh, the parking rules in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is especially problematic about some of those situations you're talking about mm-hmm. is that it, it it's often not just a traffic lane they're blocking. Sometimes mm-hmm. they double park in a bike lane. And mm-hmm. that the cyclist who needs to use that lane has to swing out into traffic, even into oncoming traffic, and that that is a very dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. where they're blocking a crosswalk. So. Uh, there's an underlying issue, and that's that we do need to update the city's parking regulations to accommodate more flexibility, more, you know, probably, probably fewer people, you know, parking in a meter and shopping and more people stopping for a minute or two to make a delivery. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're working on. But mm-hmm. what should the driver do? The, the driver should try to obey the rules as much as possible and be especially mindful of crosswalks and bike lanes and where there's vulnerable people.
1: Well, I think that is good advice. Um, we have a listener email here. Um, you were talking about parking enforcement. This one is about speed limits. This person writes, I've lived in San Francisco since 2000. I used to see police pulling drivers over regularly, but in the past several years, they seem to have disappeared when it comes to traffic enforcement. I see people running lights, speeding through residential neighborhoods with no consequence. What's going on? How can our streets be safer if the traffic laws aren't enforced? Leah, is this a San Francisco problem or is this something that that you see in other cities?
5: You know, the, the problem of high speeds is unfortunately universal. We're not alone in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would suggest, you know, the idea of police catching someone speeding. You know, I just want to, to be honest, that's a very you know reactive, um, you know, after the fact situation, right? and let's be honest there's never going to be enough cops out there to to cover a whole city anywhere anytime so you know i think what what sfmta is really focusing on and what we need to see more of in san francisco around the country is that more uh, really preventative work that physically discourages people from driving so fast and and i think this is a really big difference i want to just kind of pause and say you know this idea of vision zero the goal of zero traffic deaths who in their right mind really would oppose this, right? Mm -hmm. But it's more than just a, a, a tagline or a goal. It really is a fundamental shift in priorities. We are saying, you know what? We are going to prioritize safety over speed. We are going to prioritize sometimes safety over what feels like convenience. And in that case, to really say, you know, we're going to redesign this road so that it really encourages you physically To travel the speed limit and not to go 15 miles over the speed limit. Mm -hmm. So, this idea that, you know, oh, one day we're all gonna be perfect humans and obey all the laws, uh, you know, let's keep holding our breaths. But (laughs) what we can do is, you know, make real physical changes. And I'll say it's not just folks like Tom's job. it, it, we have to look to vehicle manufacturers, the car manufacturers. You know, why does your car go up to 150 miles per hour? If you're not a race car driver, mm-hmm. why, why is that possible, right? Mm-hmm. And there's so much that other nations are doing, such as I'll just mention speed limiters. And New York City is testing this right now that that holds a vehicle to the a safe speed limit or right above the safe speed limit. And, and a lot of design things we can be doing. So let's not pretend that humans are perfect or they're ever going to be perfect, and let's start designing safety into the systems physically. Leah, what's a speed limiter? Yeah, it is something new to me, too. Mm -hmm. Um, It turns out that technology exists today, literally, and it's being mandated now in European cars across the European Union, which basically... Discourages or keeps the car, the person driving, from going over the speed limit. Now they can override it, as I understand, in a case of an emergency. You know, if mm-hmm. something dramatic is happening, but it's a conscious choice, right? Mm. So this idea that again, somebody doesn't just zoom and go 150 miles miles per hour because they're on a joyride, mm-hmm. and instead. There's, you know, just like we think about, um, you know, all this technology that can improve safety, it would actually keep the vehicle at a safe speed, which mm-hmm. is really exciting.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Well, you know, I would
1: also want to ask about we talked briefly about e-bikes um, and the speed that they go. Uh, I live on a slow street and uh, to be honest, I've seen e-bikes go at least 15 to 25 miles an hour down my street. Um and is there something to limit the speed of those I see more and more of these they're expensive but people have them. They're a nice way to get around town. I'm not a, an anti-bike person, but you know to get it is not just a car hitting people problem, it's a it's also bikes. What do you think about that, Tom?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think this is an instance where the perception and the data may be a little different, but the perception is important. Uh, there are, I, I think there's been during the Vision Zero era, a, a single case of a, a, a cyclist hitting a, a pedestrian and, and even causing a, uh, and causing a fatality. But that doesn't mean that it's not scary when you're walking down the sidewalk and you see somebody cycling right next to you on the sidewalk. Or when you're walking down a slow street, like you said, Grace, mm-hmm. and you see somebody go by at, at a speed that seems to be too high. Uh, one of the one of the one of the really important messages we've been trying to give everyone in San Francisco, whether you're using bike lane or, or, or a slow street or or even or even riding through Golden Gate Park on JFK Drive is that uh, we need to share the roads and cyclists and pedestrians need to share all the space that we're trying to carve out through slow through programs like slow streets, which is which is going to create a citywide network of ways you can travel without too much interference from cars and um, That's precious space, but we cyclists do need to be mindful of um, the impact that they can have on maybe just the psychology of pedestrians and their sense of safety. Uh, We will, however, continue to build bike lanes. We'll continue to expand the city's bike share system because cycling is very clearly uh, a key part of the answer to the city's safety and our climate crisis.
1: Uh, well, I want to ask you, about, we're talking about ways to change the road, some systemic ways. And in November, the Berkeley City Council voted to approve an initial proposal that would ban the practice of turning right at a red light. Is that something that might help in San Francisco, Leah?
5: You know, I might bounce this one to Tom. I'll, I'll be <laughs> honest that the, the red light running cameras have been less of a focus for us from a safety perspective. Um, I, I don't want to discount um, because I don't, I don't have deep knowledge on this, but the, the bigger issue I will say for, I think, San Francisco and for communities that we're working with across the nation are speed safety cameras. And, and again, back to the point of it really is the speed that kills, and not to be too graphic here, but if an average-sized person like me um, is hit by a car, moving at an average size car, moving at 20 miles per hour, I've got a 90% roughly 90% chance of survival. If Mm -hmm. I'm hit by that same car at 40 miles per hour, I have a 90% chance of death. So I just want to pause there for a second and say, you know, 35, 40 miles per hour might not feel that fast to you, but it is. Um, And and that, that speed and weight are, are hugely important. So I say that because, you know, I think it's important that we focus on the things that matter most and speed and, and, and separating road users with different, you know, weights and, and heaviness are really important. But yeah. I'll bounce it to Tom to share. Yeah. I,
0: I'm, I'm so glad Leah mentioned speed cameras because uh, one specific disadvantage we have in California that other cities like New York and Chicago and D.C., places that, that have made a, a big dent in their traffic fatalities, uh, has been the fact that in California, we are, cities are banned from putting up cameras that, uh, that track your speed and, and send you a speeding ticket in the mail. Um, and and that, is a, that, that is a proven tool. It can, be, it can be used equitably, it can be used uh, uh, anonymously, uh, it can be used in ways to protect users' privacy. And the biggest, actually the SFMP's biggest legislative priority right now is to get that authorization and to demonstrate to the rest of California that we can pilot uh, a really effective speed safety camera and start to show the results that Leah is talking about. So I'm glad you mentioned that, Leah.
1: Yeah. Um, let's go, let's, let's see if we can squeeze in one more call. Peter, um, welcome to State of the Bay.
3: Yes. Uh, I'm blind and um, I got hit by a car because the curb cuts, the curb cuts are horrible things. All blind people hate them and, uh, and, and, People in charge of, like, mobility and orientation who who instruct blind people tell me, yeah, blind people hate these things. Yeah. Because the curb is a warning. It's a warning to a blind person that you're stepping into the street. When those were gone, and they say they got these tactile warnings, those tactile warnings are ineffective. All you got to do is Google it, and it'll tell you they're ineffective. The, this world has been made... made you know, hostile to blind people.
1: Oh, I'm sorry that you've had that experience. Well, Peter. what are you going to do about it? Well, Nothing. let's let's. It's all right. Nobody does anything. Well, about let's it. see if Tom if Tom has something to say. And thank you for calling State of the Bay, Tom. What do you say to um, Peter's dilemma?
0: Yeah, I, I think Peter's point. He had a really challenging uh, dilemma we have in street design, where we want to do things like uh, have what we call curb cuts, which is if you if you've across the street in San Francisco, you've got a nice gentle ramp from the sidewalk down to the crosswalk, which is really important for people in wheelchairs or strollers or who have trouble with that big step up. But it is hard for a person who, who is relying on the cane and, and doesn't have the visual cues of where the street ends. Uh, we are going to keep finding ways to put, Peter mentioned, tactile materials in the street, uh, tactile materials in the sidewalk. We'll keep finding ways to, to make the system safer. Uh, we talked about a systems approach. That is, the, that is the way to achieve Vision Zero. It is not to say there's only one one thing, traffic enforcement, or one thing, traffic engineering, uh, we need to take a systems approach. And I think Peter's question uh, is, a, is, a, is a really good uh, good indication of just how complex that is in a place like San Francisco when there's 800,000 different people who have who each have their own needs and their own ways of, of getting around. But it is our commitment to end traffic fatalities, uh, whether it takes 10 years or it takes our lifetime, it is our commitment.
1: Well, that was Tom McGuire. He's the Director of Streets with the San Francisco Municipal Transit, Transportation Agency. Thanks so much for being here on State of the Bay, Tom. And we also heard from Leah Sham. She's the founder and director of the Vision Zero Network. Leah, I think we need to bring you on again. There's so much more to cover.
5: Thanks so much. I appreciate the attention to the issue.
1: Yes. Um, Well, next on State of the Bay, we're going to be talking about the Chileno Valley Newt Brigade. Stay with us. Welcome back to State at the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. If you find yourself driving down Chileno Valley Road in Petaluma on a warm, rainy evening this winter please drive carefully. You may just encounter our next guest and her colleagues as they help to ferry local newts across the road. Between November and March, newts, which are a type of salamander, migrate to nearby bodies of water in order to reproduce. When these migration routes cross streets, like Chileno Valley Road, the newts are in danger of losing their lives. But lucky for them, they're not alone. Sally Gale, a local citizen scientist and founder of the Chileno Valley Newt Brigade, joins me tonight to discuss local efforts to provide safe passage to these favorite amphibians. Welcome to State of the Bay, Sally.
7: Thank you, Grace. Nice to be here.
1: Well, why, I mean, I guess it's a riddle, but why are the nudes crossing the road?
7: Well, um, I think you explained it pretty well. (laughs) Most of their lives um, in their terrestrial habitat under leaves and rocks and in gopher holes, and then in November, when uh, it starts to rain, they get the urge to travel down the hill to um, a lake. In our case, it's Laguna Lake, uh, where they breed. They meet, you know, the female newts and they breed.
1: Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what they look like. Um,
7: you know, there used to be a time when everyone knew what a newt looked like because there were so many of them. Mm. But, um, they're really cute. They're kind of jewel-like. They look a little bit like a lizard, but they're not, they're not horny. They're, um, they're smooth-skinned and they're beautiful colors. Their bellies are orange. I'm talking about the California newts and the rough-skinned newts. And then their backs are either brown or kind of a dark, dark darkish, uh, brown-black color.
1: You mentioned that there was a time that people, most people knew what these newts look like. Are the newts endangered or have their numbers just dropped precipitously?
7: In some parts of California, uh, the newts have disappeared. Their populations are extirpated. In our particular area, um, I think they're doing all right, except that we certainly need to do more research on these populations to determine whether or not they're, you know, really in trouble. I know the designation uh, for their uh, their status has dropped just recently um, by the international body that uh, determines these um, endangered uh, categories. Um, but I, I think there are great differences in different areas. In the in the more urban areas, of course, you're going to have populations of amphibians that have just plain disappeared or are greatly reduced. But we live in an agricultural area. Um, I have a ranch about two miles from Laguna Lake where we work. And uh, this this area is a lot more um, habitable for newts and other amphibians, although um, quite a few of them are endangered or threatened.
1: Hmm. So tell me, what, what does a newt brigade do exactly?
7: Well, the Newt Brigade goes out along a one-mile stretch of road. We've been doing this for about four years now. And we, we pick up newts and keep them out of the way of cars and trucks that, that go by and run over them and kill them. Mm. So our purpose is to save the newts. And then at the same time, we photograph them so that we know exactly where they found we found them. And this gives us information about where to place culverts or overpasses some someday in the future uh, when we raise enough money to um, change the roads so that these newts and red-legged frogs and western pond turtles don't get run over by cars and trucks.
1: At what time of day are you out there? Are, do the newts mostly move during the daytime or is it at all hours?
7: That's pretty interesting. If it's a really rainy day, you'll probably see them 24 hours mm-hmm. um, for 24 hours. But um, in general, the time that they like most to cross seems to coincide with the commute time around here. Mm. It's around sundown uh, up until about 9 o'clock. So from, say, 5.30 until 9 o'clock, we see the greatest number of newts. But if it's a really great, um you know condition if if the temperature is what they like like around fifty five degrees and if it's raining gently um you know they'll carry on throughout the night and cross the road um you know throughout the night
1: mm-hmm. and are they fast moving or are they kind of slow to move
7: they are really really slow <laughs> and they they do this um sad little gesture when they see a car coming. Mm. They're up on their front feet and they stick out their chest and they show the orange color underneath their chin to frighten the car away. And of course, it doesn't work at all. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's it's not going to stop a, a car from I mean, this cars can barely see them, right?
7: Yeah. Well, if you're looking, you can, you know, I mean, the commuters should be able to figure out what they look like and avoid them mm-hmm. on most nights. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, what's a speed limit out on that road?
7: Yeah, I was interested in listening to your um, your guests earlier talk about speed limits. Our speed limit, it's it's a country road, so it's I think it's 40 or 50. Wow. And I've talked to the county. Uh, we live in Marin County, and I've talked to the county about reducing the speed limit, and they say they can't reduce it.
1: Mhm. So, it's a bad combination of fast moving cars and slow moving newts. Um how many how many newts do you think you've saved? Well, um this
7: year we've saved about 6500 uh newts and we have peeled up about 1500 dead newts.
1: Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, but that's a pretty impressive number. Um, But while in the course of doing your new brigading, you've had the police called on your group a few times. What happened?
7: Uh, Yeah, we have some neighbors who aren't too crazy about us, and um, they like to um, complain about us. Mm -hmm. But uh, the only thing that happened was um, a policeman came out once and, um he jumped out of his he, he turned on his lights and they, you know, were twirling around and lighting up the whole area and he jumped out. He was a great big guy. And um it turned out he was just charmed by the newts and <laughs> beside me and he took pictures of the newts and helped me look for them and then he went up and down the road and told the volunteers where the newts were and to <laughs> get right now and take care of this newt kind of thing. So the, the police have been very supportive of us. They're pro
1: newt. Uh, I mean, how, when you said you, they're slow moving, and you pick them up. Are they poisonous?
7: You know, they are poisonous if you eat them. So, oh, okay, all <laughs> one, but um, and some people use gloves because they do have a neurotoxin in ah. there. But I have never used gloves, and I pick up the live newts and the dead newts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to play with them as a kid. Nobody ever told me they were poisonous. So I really don't think they're dangerous. They they, they have a, a toxin in their skin that if they are threatened with their lives, they will emit. But um, they don't seem to be afraid of us.
1: Is that where your interest in nudes came from, that you used to play with them when you were a child?
7: You know, I'm just kind of interested in everything. <laughs> Some people say, why newts? And I mean, my own personal answer is because they were getting run over on the road. And I just didn't think that was it was right. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
7: It just wasn't okay. I mean, I couldn't really talk about it intellectually. To me, it just it was just not right. You know, that these poor animals were just going, do, trying to carry on with their normal lives. And just because a road was in the way. They got run over, and I just didn't think it was right. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, where can listeners learn more about your organization, Sally? And, and Can is there a T-shirt to be purchased or anything? Is there Newt merchandise?
7: Uh, there is Newt merch, yes. <laughs> um, we have a Facebook page, an Instagram account. Um, we're on Twitter. Um, just look up Shalina Valley Newt Brigade. You can donate through our site. Uh, We're trying to raise money to build something, to change the road so that the newts are safe. So, yes, if you're interested in volunteering or donating, look us up
1: on the uh, Internet. Well, I certainly hope this segment gets you some more T-shirt sales and some more volunteers, because this really seems awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Sally Gale. She's the founder of the Chileno Valley Newt Brigade.
7: Thank you, Grace. It's been fun. Yeah.
1: Well, that's State of the Bay this week. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. Email us at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Make sure to join us next week when we'll look at the Bay Area's proposed ban on new natural gas water heaters and furnaces. Tonight's show was produced by Chris Nooney and Kendra Klang. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D minor was our board operator. I'm Grace Wan. Good night and thanks for listening.